immortal yet paraphrased words of Albus Dumbledore. Hope can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. Welcome to episode six of Turn On The Light. Thank you for coming back and joining me in these strange um, and uncertain times. Um, The positive thing for this week, I think, that we can all take away is that the weather is actually lovely. Um, So, you know, the sunshine always brings a bit of positivity to my mood. I don't know about you. Um, It's much better, I suppose, to be locked away and, and locked down when the sun is shining rather than it being a grim winter with rain and and wind and all of that and no end in sight um so yes thankful for the sunshine um thankful for the wildlife that i'm seeing in my garden i mentioned last time about the birds that i'm seeing i saw a lesser spotted woodpecker the other day which was very fun really enjoyed seeing him um i don't have a very good camera so sadly i couldn't get anything other than a fuzzy phone photo of of that guy but you know it's nice enough to just see them and know they're there sometimes um, another exciting piece of news, the garden next door has a litter of fox cubs underneath it, which is so super cute. Um, my dog was always sniffing around sort of that area, so I knew there was something going on there. And then our next door neighbours told us that, uh, that there's fox cubs, and then this morning I finally saw them. It was about 6am, Chewie woke up to go for a wee, um, and I ended up taking him out the front instead of the back, because when I looked out the back, I could see the little fox cubs playing and mum was there, and then another larger fox came along, which I can only assume was dad, and then they had a whole little family gathering, and it was just the cutest. Um, Yeah, so usually, you know, I do a little piece of good news from the past couple of weeks, Um, and the good news today is actually a really um, personal one for me. Um, I just wanted to thank you all so, so much for listening and for tuning in, um, as I have nearly had 300 plays in total of turn on the light which is absolutely incredible thank you so so much thank you to all the new listeners thank you to people who tune in every couple of weeks and listen to the new episodes when they come out um there's a few select people who i know do do that um so thank you so so much to those guys um yeah so at the moment as it stands there have been 298 plays um so hopefully today i'll i'll breach the 300 mark um so that's incredible um and my analytics are showing me as well the wide spread of listeners um so i kind of knew that there'd be listeners in the uk the us and australia based on people who i've either interviewed or people who i know from working in the industry and friends and and stuff like that But there's also listeners in Canada, Sweden, Germany, and even a listener in Indonesia. Um, So thank you guys so much for for listening. That's incredible. I never would have thought that it would reach, you know, that many, that many miles away. Um, So thanks. (laughs) Um, I'm very, very grateful um, to everybody who listens to me waffle on. Um, And another piece of good news which was reported a couple of days ago in newspapers. Um, It is, again, COVID-19 related. I'm sorry, but that is kind of the... um, the... uh, sort of the thing that you're going to see most about in the news at the moment. And, um, of course, as my news feeds and my newsletters and updates are geared towards the environment and conservation, then I do get a lot of those stories coming, coming into my into my sphere if you like um but yes so this news is that china signals the end to dog meat consumption by humans um which is amazing obviously this ties in with um sort of the regulation of wet markets and them looking to stop the wildlife trade um that ties in with with those different things as well um the chinese government has signaled an end to the human consumption of dogs with the agriculture ministry releasing a draft policy that would forbid canine meat um, and the reasons are they cite the progress of human civilization as well as growing public concern over animal welfare and of course prevention of disease transmission from animals to humans and Dogs have been recognised as a special companion animal and not one internationally recognised as livestock, not one recognised for its for the consumption of its meat, which is just amazing. Um, and I'm sure you can all 
join me in rejoicing that that um, may become a thing, that dog meat is, is no longer going to be farmed in China. Um, because we all know that dogs are indeed special companion animals. Um, they're beautiful, they're wonderful, and mine's getting me through this, uh, this strange time on our little planet Earth. <laughs> so there are my couple of bits of good news for this week. Um, and let's... Uh, Let's dive in. Um, so those who, who follow me on Instagram may have seen a couple of little clues um, to the species in the spotlight this week. Um, this week it's a little different. It's not necessarily a species that was brought back from the brink of extinction. Um, it's a species that was actually um, reintroduced after having become extinct in the UK. Um, so without further ado, I introduce to you the Eurasian beaver. Just a little aside here for you before I start the main recording, the main body of the show. If I feel it sound a bit nasal and I'm a bit snuffly, I do apologise. It's hay fever. I have taken an antihistamine, but please just bear with me. Okay, so the Eurasian beaver is a species of beaver that was once widespread throughout Eurasia. Eurasia being Europe and Asia. Eurasia. Ta-da! Um, Latin name Castor fiber. It is one of the largest living rodent species and the largest that is native to Eurasia. Um, they are second only to the capybara. Um, so their length, they reach 80 to 100 centimetres, so up to a metre long. Um, for you imperial chaps, that's 31 to 39 inches. Um, and their tail itself can reach a whopping 25 to 50 centimetres long. So potentially longer than, you know, your 30 centimetre ruler. So a pretty, pretty big, hefty, hefty old tail there. Um, again, for you imperial chaps, that's 9 to 19 inches. Um, and they weigh around between 11 and 30 kilograms, the average being 18 kilograms, um, which is, you know, like a 10-year-old child. So a pretty hefty, dense animal there. Um, yeah, as I said, the only dude heavier is the capybara. And we all know that they're the, the largest rodent um, on the planet. Um, so you may be familiar with the North American beaver as well. Um, they're quite... Um, they're quite well publicised, I suppose, in America. Um, but there are differences between the North American beaver and the Eurasian beaver, which I will go into now. Um, our guys are actually heavier. Um, and our guys... Sorry, when I say our guys, I mean the guys we're talking about today. Like, not specific to region, in case any of you American listeners um, are out there saying, hey, what about our, our North American beaver is our guy? Um, but no, I just mean who we're talking about now. So... Our guys, the Eurasian beaver, have 48 chromosomes and the North American beaver has 40. Um, so this means that they're not genetically compatible. Um, and there have been attempts to hybridise um, the two species, so to breed them together, and they've all been unsuccessful. So interspecific breeding in areas where habitats may overlap between the two is unlikely. They're two very distinct species um, and they cannot breed together at all. Um, there's slight fur colour differences. The North American chaps tend to have more of a reddy kind of fur. Um, and the Eurasian beaver has a larger, less round head and a narrower, less oval tail than its counterparts. Um, so that's just a little bit about the differences between the two there. Um, now, the amazing thing about beavers um, and the thing that fascinates me the most and why they're so interesting is that they are what's called a keystone species. So that means they support the habitat and the ecosystem within which they live. They play a massive part in the shaping um, of the habitat where lots of other species live. So, for example, they create wetland for other species to live in. They facilitate regrowth of shrubs and trees, etc. Um, dams improve water quality. Water quality sorry. Um, and a plethora of other benefits that they bring to the areas in which they live, um, which I will go into more detail in later. Um, but just to sort of sort of drum home that they are a very important species and they have many benefits to, to the areas in which they live. Um, so prior to the decimations of the populations throughout Europe, the Eurasian beaver was widespread 
across continental Europe, across Scandinavia, Great Britain and Asia. Um, and of course, I think I mentioned earlier that in this episode, we're focusing on their populations in Great Britain. Um, so these poor little beavers or big beavers um, were driven actually to complete extinction in Britain in the 16th century. And the last reference to our fairy little buddies dates back to 1526. So they have been gone from our countryside for quite a long time. Um, the reason for their extinction, and I'll give you three guesses, the reason for their extinction was due to human hunting. Big eye roll there. So they were hunted for their fur, for their meat, and for castorium. Castorium. Castorium? Castorium. And this is uh, lovely stuff which comes from what's called the caster sacks of the beaver, um, which it uses within combination with its urine to scent mark. So they've got the castorium and the urine, they combine together and then it rubs its little its little sacks on things and, and, and scent marks, much like a dog would pee on something to mark its, its territory. Um, and yes, these caster sacks are very close to the anal glands, their neighbours. So why on earth did people want this stuff? Why did they want to collect it? Well, believe it or not, we use this castorium as an ingredient in perfumes and even sometimes as a food additive. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound particularly attractive or necessary. Um, so, yeah, thank God we, uh, we, we don't do that anymore and we have other, other ingredients for those kinds of things. Um, so losing these beautiful creatures from our island not only meant the loss of such a charismatic species, it also meant the loss of the mosaic of lakes, meres, mires, tams and boggy places that it so brilliantly built across the whole country. So, it was decided that we should probably try and reintroduce this species um, into the UK. Um, and it took... You know, a lot of decision making from a lot of higher up powers. There was conflict with landowners and farmers that they didn't want this to be a thing. Um, uh, conflict with humans is is a common a common issue that the wildlife comes up against. Um, and beavers maybe were thought to they could spread parasitic diseases. They could, you know, cause a lot of problems. Um, but eventually. <laughs> Um, the first efforts in over 400 years to introduce wild beavers back into the UK um, happened in Scotland. Um, and this happened thanks to the Wildlife Trusts as a collective, um, and then obviously the different arm of the Wildlife Trusts um, in whatever part of the country you're in. So in this case, the Scottish Wildlife Trust. Um, they worked with governments and with local landowners um, to fuel the movement of the Scottish beaver trial. Now that took off in 2009 and beavers were released into Knapdale Forest, Argyll. By November 2016, the Scottish government ruled the trial a success and that beavers could stay for good, even granting the species legal protection. So they were granted legal protected species status. In October 2017, a three-year reinforcement project began, with three more beavers being released into Naptail Forest, followed by even more in the spring of 2018. So around 11 were released originally in the trial period, um, and the reinforcement period for that three years allowed for 28 more to be released. Um, so that was a huge success, um, and they have been allowed to stay there. Um, now, there is also a large and expanding group that inhabits the Tay catchment in Scotland, um, which I really like, and they're thriving, and there's, you know, sort of maybe over 400 individuals there, um, but that was thought to be an unlicensed release. Oops. <laughs> um, but thanks to the Scottish Beaver Trial, you know, they're allowed to stay. We, we know that it's a good thing that they're there. Um, so that's fabulous. Um, now, wild beavers in England is a more recent thing um so this stemmed from a another sort of mysterious perhaps illegal perhaps unlicensed release of beavers um they were found living in east devon in 2008 um as i said thought to be an illegally released population um 
and initially Defra wanted to remove them. Um, okay, so Defra stands for the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. Yeah, so Defra wanted to remove them, saying that they risked spreading parasitic disease. Um, but Devon Wildlife Trust said no. And they spent the majority of the year developing a proposal to allow England's first ever wild beaver trial. And they were eventually allowed to do so. And this kicked off in 2015 um, to 2020. So that takes us up to present day. Um, and it's called the River Otter Beaver Trial. A bit confusing there because, you know, otters, beavers, but <laughs> in the River Otter. So the River Otter Beaver Trial. Um, and the first baby beavers were actually born there in England in 2014. Um, very, very cute. But those baby beavers is actually what prompted Defra to want to remove them um, because obviously they were breeding and thriving and and spreading. Um, and they thought that it was a problem. Um, but Devon Wildlife Trust, they got their way. And here we are. Here we have the first beaver trial. Wild beaver trial. That's important. Wild beaver trial um, in England. Um, and the this population of beavers has actually been confirmed disease-free and the trial has been extended by six months whilst decisions are being made about their long-term presence in the country. So watch this space. It is looking good. Um, it is looking really, really positive. Um, and Devon Wildlife Trust had to submit a report to um, to DEFRA in, in early 2020 um, to report on the progress. Um, and now, yes, so six months extra have been put onto the trial to allow decisions to be made. Um, so I imagine that I will definitely be updating you on the status of that in subsequent podcasts. Um, but fingers crossed for those guys. As I said, it's looking really, really fab and really good. Um, and, you know, based on the success that Scotland have had with it also, um, we're looking for a positive outcome. Um, so there are also some enclosed beaver projects within the UK. Um, and I wanted to sort of make that distinction talking about the wild in reintroductions first um, because obviously they're free roaming they can go anywhere um, but the few enclosed beaver projects um, they were on a sort of slightly different time scale um, so there was a project called the Hamfen Beaver Project which is in Kent um, which took off in 2001 so two families of Norwegian beavers were released um, in Kent in an enclosed space um, contained within around 300 hectares. Um, and the funny thing is this was actually done um, because Kent were having real problems in restoring their fenlands without machinery. Um, so they thought that beavers would be really good at helping this to happen, facilitating this to happen. And so they were released into that enclosed area. And then, of course, they were really good um, at restoring Fenland because that's the kind of thing that they do. Um, then we've also got the Devon Beaver Project, which began in 2011, um, where one beaver family group were introduced into a three hectare enclosed area in West Devon. And then also the Cornish Beaver Project, which took off in 2017, um, with beavers being brought back to Woodland Valley Farm and reintroduced into a specially fenced area, um, which is exciting that a farmer chose to sort of partake in that kind of activity, actually getting wildlife back into their lands. Um, the farmer actually said, um, I can't wait to get the beavers on the farm and see what they do, which is lovely to hear. Um, and that quote leads me nicely on to talk about exactly why beavers are so awesome for our country not just because they're adorable. So I touched on this earlier about how they're a keystone species and how they lend many benefits to the countryside as a whole. Um, they are what's known as ecosystem engineers. So they make changes to habitats by digging new waterway systems. Of course, damming, um, watercourses, coppicing, trees and shrubs, which all create diverse wetlands. And this in turn brings benefits to other species like otters, water shrews, water voles, birds, invertebrates and breeding fish. And not only do they benefit the habitats and the species which live within them, they benefit us. They benefit our human species. Um, and they do this by helping to reduce flooding. So dams help hold back water and release it more slowly after heavy rain periods. They also increase water retention 
which is helpful on the opposite side of things when we're experiencing drought. They help clean water. So dams trap sediments and silt um, and even help to filter agricultural chemicals. Um, And they also reduce siltation, which pollutes watercourses. So basically, beavers are awesome. Reducing devastating flooding impacts, increasing habitat diversity and in turn biodiversity. Now, I will add a link in to the show notes for the Wildlife Trust's report on all beaver activity across the UK um, for more for more detail um, on what I've all just touched on there, all the reintroduction projects. Um, and a link to the River Otter Beaver Project report that was submitted to DEFRA at the beginning of this year. Um, that would be a really interesting read for you all. And another point to to make here, it's it's all, all these beaver trails are spreading like wildfire. Um, so the Wildlife Trust in Wales are currently developing a small-scale, unfenced reintroduction into Wales um, so they've sort of seen how well it's gone in other areas and they are developing proposals to make it a thing in Wales of course um, so at the end of all that the UK beaver population at last count has been estimated at more than 400 animals um, so for a species that were completely wiped out from, from our lands um, to be reintroduced and to be thriving and for people and farmers particularly to to be pleased about that is is amazing. It's incredible and I hope that we all, all of us living in the UK, me included, when we can get out and about um, when we're allowed to do so, I hope that you know we'll be able to go and see these guys um, in their habitats, um, see their dams that they build um, and just enjoy their presence back in the UK. Um, Of course, it's still an ongoing work. Uh, Governments and farmers and landowners do still need convincing of the amazing benefits of having these animals back in the country, wild and free roaming. Um, And if you can, then please do go to the Wildlife Trust's webpage and donate to the efforts. Um, I'll also post a link in the show notes um, to their page to enable you to donate if you can, if you want to. Um, But it is looking good for the little critters. Um, And I'll leave you on this positive note from a farmer visiting the Cornwall Beaver Project. And he said, I came in thinking I couldn't possibly have beavers on my land. I am leaving thinking I can't possibly not. And now time for our beaver fun facts. So, fun fact number one. Beavers can hold their breath for up to 15 minutes. Fun fact number two. Beavers are actually herbivores, like me. They do not eat fish, contrary to popular belief. Fun fact number three. Beavers live in small family groups and are thought to mate for life. And they will deliberately seek out mates that are genetically different from themselves. How clever is that? So there's no Lannister-level inbreeding kind of thing going on here with bees. Fun fact number four. The big one. This is about dams. So, why do they build dams? They build dams to restrict water flow and create still, deep ponds. And that is where they create their lodges to live in, safe from predation. Isn't that cute? And very clever. Fun fact number five. They can fell a single tree in a single night. So there they are gnawing away on it and they can get that get that down, get that job done in one single night. Amazing. So that's your fun facts. I will stop at five. I could go on forever. I am partial to a beaver fact. Um, so yeah, let's move on to introduce my special guest this week. So this is Ben Jones. He is a self-described conservationist, citizen of planet Earth, and on a quest to become a complete naturalist. Ben studied a Bachelor of Science in Marine Biology in Swansea, after which he travelled and explored, working alongside wildlife at every step of the way and taking some wonderful photographs of said wildlife. He is currently living in the Scottish Highlands, working as a naturalist and guide at the Agas Field Centre. So let's talk to him about all things Scottish and Highlandy. Hello. 
Hello. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. How's the uh, how's the wet and windy weather treating you up there? Uh, yeah, you know about that. Yeah. <laughs> it was a mad day today, really. There was um, snow, hail, rain, and I went. I walked out this morning just with my sunnies on, and it was the most glorious sunshine. It will change after about twenty minutes. So. Um, yeah, pretty. <laughs> so you got sort of the whole array of all the different weather types all in one go. Lucky you. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the bonuses of living in Scotland. Really. <laughs> oh well, um, as uh, as always, I have sort of pre-recorded a little intro for you, um, sort of saying who you are um, and what you've done and where you've been, etc. Um, yeah, so I guess if that's all right with you, we can just dive straight into the questions yeah cool, cool. yeah so um yeah as I mentioned there I've sort of touched a little bit on um where you've been and what you've done and the vast array of wildlife and um, that you've had the pleasure of working with um such as chimpanzees in Uganda bears in Romania um wildcats where you are in the highlands at the moment um and of course all the mm -hmm. marine life that you've seen world over Madagascar Hungary um and working with orca um which, just if people don't know, is the organisation dedicated to studying and protecting whales and dolphins um, and porpoises in UK and European waters. Um, and this is always a hard question that I ask my interviewees, um, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> um, is there any yeah. trip that was particularly stand out for you? Any species that you just absolutely adored um, or any study um, that you didn't want to finish? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a really tough question. Um, <laughs> after leaving uni, the first, well, my kind of first foray really into the, the world of conservation was volunteering with um, Orca. And that was, it was mainly just um, helping people see whales and dolphins from a, a ferry between England and Spain on, you know, people are just going on a, you know, maybe a cheap holiday to Spain, but as kind of engaging with people. Um, who wouldn't necessarily be watching for wildlife, but if I could show them a whale, they were kind of hooked. Um, so I think for, in terms of wanting a career in conservation, that really gave me the bug in terms of trying to inspire people to care about nature. And did you manage to get um, like, a lot of engagement from people? Were they really receptive? And that sort of tickled your pickle as well and thought, oh, this is, this is really exciting to get people excited. Yeah, it was so cool. Um, I remember chatting to some, because obviously I'd just be out on deck um, again in kind of horrific weather sometimes, <laughs> but um, it's better than just being inside. And people would come out for a cigarette and you just end up chatting to them and then suddenly a, a whale would pop up and they'd just be, oh my God, they didn't expect to see a whale, you know, off of the coast of the UK. Um, so that was just, yeah, it was just absolutely amazing because I think going through university and then going through experiences like we did in Madagascar when you go on these volunteer projects you're just surrounded by people who obviously love wildlife and are just so engaged in conservation mm. and it's it's so nice to chat to people who aren't in that bubble and almost um they share the wonders of the natural world that they just didn't realize existed beyond their television mm -hmm. yeah you kind of get that a bit don't you like you end up in your own echo chamber and then when you say something to someone outside of that world about conservation or the environment and they're like what hey I didn't know that and you're just shocked you're like what <laughs> I thought everybody knew this thing about this species or you know about about the natural world yeah it is it is such a small world the, the world of conservation sometimes you know what is it in the world it's seven degrees of um but within conservation it's probably much smaller kind of one or two and then you probably can you somehow have a connection with everybody involved mm -hmm. um, but yeah it's really nice to actually um you know spread the message sometimes without it, um i don't know just like really organically just by bumping into someone and having a chat with them instead of um you know them having to come to a talk or a lecture you just kind of pass them in this or on top of a deck and just say oh yeah there's a big whale there and there and then they're hooked and they want to know more <laughs> so I, I think that first kind of step out into the the world of conservation um that experience 
gave me the bug for once in a career in this field. Um, but probably one of the best experiences um, is probably it's it's got to be Madagascar. I'd say obviously the one. Yay! Where <laughs> Uh, it was it was it was just um, it was just amazing, really. Obviously, it's such a, an alien world to anywhere um, I'd been before. And for me, I think I was at a stage in my life where I just I just wanted to go and see and do some of these things that you just you just end up seeing on telly or you end up reading about. And I just wanted to literally go into the jungle and dive coral reefs and you know try and help some of the animals along the way. And uh, yeah, that again just kind of showed me the diversity of the world and how much that it needs saving, especially in Madagascar, where um, not just the reefs that are being uh, destroyed, but also the forests and all of the unique wildlife that's out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And that, yeah, mm-hmm. where you get a chance to explore these things, you want to do it before you don't have the chance anymore. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I know it's not in um, in kind of the essence of your podcast, <laughs> which I've, I've listened to so far because it's just been it's been great just you know hearing these inspirational stories from people. Um, but I remember being at university, and it was probably in my third year. Um, I was at a lecture about coral reefs, and a lecturer just said, "You need to go see them now because in thirty years they're just not going to be here." Um, and that was ten years ago now. And unfortunately, it does look like we're going that way and that they are disappearing at the moment. Um, and obviously, there are some good work going on where people are trying to, you know, breed certain types of coral and plant them out. And yeah. hopefully we'll find ones that are resilient. And I really hope that works. But at the moment, they're looking in a bit of a dire. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. You mentioned um, coral reefs, actually. The previous interview um, that I did before yours was um, with Marantor, who um, I think you'd left Madagascar by the time she arrived. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, but now she's researching exactly that um, about sort of breeding corals um, and translocating corals um, to reefs that have been bleached or that are being damaged. Um, and her research is sort of looking at how how it affects the rest of the ecosystem by translocating these corals, because that's obviously a knock-on factor that they don't really know too much about yet. Um, but he's like at yeah. the forefront of that research. So go Marin, we wish you all the best and hope that you save them. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because yeah, yeah. It needs people like, uh, like that to, to save them really. And all of the dedication and, you know that these people have is is the only thing that's going to save a lot of our species yeah definitely and and people like you um you know showing the public the wonder of the natural world um which sort of leads me on nicely to my next question um of what okay. led you to the scottish islands um you touched a little bit there um about how madagascar has so many unique species um but so does scotland um i think i'm right in in saying um sort of insects and herbs birds larger mammals that exist up there that don't necessarily um, make it down to the rest of the UK. Um, I'm guessing that was a factor that sort of led you there, or was it a combination of things? Um, How did you end up in Scotland? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, again, just referring back to Madagascar. Uh, in one, I remember picking up a copy of BBC Wildlife magazine while I was out there, and just, just. It might have been a bit of just homesickness, but just look, kind of looking through some of the pages and just seeing some of the wildlife in there, just, even, you know, it was just like foxes and badgers. And I was just thinking, oh, God, there's just, you know, mm. we just got so much cool wildlife at home um, that um, I can do, I can, that obviously needs our help in some respects, not necessarily foxes and, and badgers to a lesser extent, but other wildlife that we've got on our doorstep that could, um benefit from a bit of conservation effort as well so I just wanted to get involved in that really and Scotland uh, is probably the best example of or has some of the best examples of what the the UK's fauna used to look like um, before humans had a huge impact on it Um, so it was a great place to be exposed to some of the larger mammals that are missing from the south which are making their way back, but um, pine martens, for example, 
um, it, it was always a real um, stronghold for the pine martin, and it was it was hunted out in the rest of the UK and pushed right up to its northwest extremity in Britain. Same as quite a few of the other animals, like the wildcat, um, and probably the highlands were the last place that um, lynx and wolves existed as well before they were eventually hunted to extinction. So yeah, that kind of the the remnant wildlife up here uh, was a bit a big draw. You're mm, right. Yeah, and um, sort of you touched a little bit there on um, wildcats, which is something I really really wanted to ask you about because um, the the field centre where you work, um, are you looking at wildcat populations and breeding? Is that is that sort of what you want there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us all about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. Yeah. So it's I've changed. From the marine, I was quite heavily into my marine uh, work when I left uni. Obviously, my degree was in marine mm -hmm. bio, and then I did three or four years in the marine sector, working on boats and doing marine mammal surveys, um, giving talks about whales and dolphins. And then uh, I kind of shifted to more terrestrial stuff. Um, I was always interested in the terrestrial stuff. Um, and I think if you're into conservation, you just you just want to help out in any way possible. And um, the opportunity came up to work um, where I am now, Agus Field Centre, um, with the on the Wildcat project. And I'd worked a little bit with it when I first started, but um, I got the opportunity to to manage the Wildcat breeding program here. Um, so obviously I jumped at that, and um, and then became um, tried to become a Wildcat <laughs> expert in as short a time as possible, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, I haven't looked back really because it's, uh, it's a pretty, I think in, in British conservation, in terms of big mammals, it's, it's you know, it's, it's pretty front line what we're working on. And it's, it's quite, it's, it's happening quite fast now in terms of what, uh, how fast paced the conservation effort is moving. Because for quite a few years, um, before I was involved, so back to 2011, um, loads of collections that have wildcats so including zoos and private collections they started to collaborate and started to swap wildcats between them and to try and build up a genetically strong um, diverse population that could be released back into the wild uh, and just to give a bit of a history of the mm -hmm. wildcat in britain it used to be spread all throughout britain uh, but again, it was pushed right up to the northwest extremity, um, just because they were a bit of a threat to red grouse and people like their pelts, and they might have taken some people's chickens. So they were shot and killed, and their habitat was destroyed, um, which was predominantly woodlands, but they have diversified a bit now. Um, so they were pushed right up to the, the northern extremity. Their numbers were put right down. Their habitat had disappeared. And, and then a couple of thousand years ago as well, uh, people brought over domestic cats. Uh, so the cats everyone has in their homes today are the ancestors, or sorry, the descendants of cats, um, of wild cats in North Africa. So they're, they're an alien species to Britain. We're not supposed to have them here, uh, but they're closely related enough to the wild cat we have in Scotland and they started to hybridize and it seems to be a symptom of because uh, it people wildcats exist in europe in places like germany and switzerland mm. but they don't have the hybridization that we do in britain and it seems to be that we were so good at killing them that it's it's pushed them to hybridize and some of the reasons are still understood not understood um, so there's a few threats facing them. Obviously, we've got the, the wildcat uh, hybridisation taking place with domestic cats. Um, and then persecution. Uh, up in Scotland, there's huge estates uh, where you're not going to bump into anybody if you're a gamekeeper. It's the same with raptor persecution as well up here. You know, that people can set up illegal traps and they can shoot something and no one's going to find out. And it's, it, I'm sure it's happening still today. Uh, wild cats in the wild are being shot. That's really sad. Is there? Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's, 
um, so it's I mean is it one of those things where there is um, legal protections for them but it's not able to really sort of be put in practice as you say if, if people are just out in the masses of countryside you're never going to come across another person nobody's really going to know that it's happening so the prosecution didn't happen yeah yeah because they weren't protected until it's like the wildlife countryside act of i think like the 1980s mm-hmm. around that time and they might have been included in one of the amendments so it's you know relatively recently and um, that they were actually protected and it seems that hybridization really took off from after the world wars when um, all of the gamekeepers or a lot of gamekeepers and a lot of people who worked on the land went off to war. A lot of the land actually in Scotland recovered. The trees came back because the moors weren't being burnt, the habitat restored, the small mammals and other animals came back and the cats weren't persecuted. So they spread back throughout Scotland, but then started to interact with the domestic cats. And so that was the kind of the start of their downfall, really. And a few years ago, like I said, in 2011, when people started working together and they they looked at estimates of the numbers of wildcats and thought that there were probably about 4,000 out in the wild in Scotland. Um, and then after a couple of years or a few years of survey, and they found out that actually it's more like oh, 100 wow. and and then a year later, yeah, more like 100. And then a year later is actually more like 30. So um, we've potentially only got 30 wildcats left in the wild in Britain. And last year, uh, they were declared functionally extinct, which means there's still enough out. There's still some out there. So they're still actually alive, but they're too widespread. They're not going to find each other to produce a viable next generation. So humans don't intervene they're going to mm-hmm. disappear so that's why uh, I'm working on breeding wildcats along with quite a few other collections I think there's over 30 collections now working together across the UK to build up a population which is going to be released back into the wild and the plans have just been kind of set in stone that um, we plan to release them in 2022 so it's um will start releases in 2022 so that's quite exciting yeah so not very far in the future at all no i i thought it was going to be when i was first getting involved a few years ago um i thought it was going to be like 10 years in the future even longer but um there is some there is suitable habitat out there and it's going to take a bit of work with managing the domestic cats in that area but if you release enough wild cats and they've got decent habitat uh, they should mate with each other. They should um, probably more likely to kill a domestic cat than they are to mate with it if they've got uh, wild cat options. So, yeah, it's, it, you know, we'll see how it goes, but um, I'm pretty hopeful that it will be a success. And we're going to supplement those initial releases with more uh, every year afterwards. So it's, um, yeah, it's looking, I think the wild cat probably reached its lower lowest point a couple of years ago in terms of just its designation in Britain and its its health in Britain. But we almost reached the bottom of the trough and now it's we're on an upward trajectory for the first time and probably the, the wildcat's natural history, really. That's incredible. I mean, so potentially in a few years' time, the conservation success story that I'm talking about on my podcast could be your one. <laughs> could be the wildcat success story that it bounced back. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I hope so. It's they're such awesome animals. Um, they're just like mini leopards, really. <laughs> they kind of they get they're so cool. They're just um, they get the name the Highland Tiger um, just because the Highlands is their last stronghold, or it was their last stronghold, and they have these nice vertical stripes running down their flank. But the best feature of them is actually they've got this huge tail. It's kind of not quite long but it's really bushy it's like a massive club and yeah it's just it's so cool and it's got these really nice rings around it and a big black blunt ended tip and obviously it, it gets uh, pretty cold up here and we get quite a bit of snow still um so yeah they just use that they just wrap it right around them and just proper snuggle into it and it's it's the best feature because 
they're one of these animals that you're not necessarily going to get an amazing view of in the wild. But if you can see that big blunt ended tail, you know you've seen one. And it's, um, yeah, it's yeah. Such a cool and is there um, is there a way that people can sort of follow along with how things are going? Um, is there an AGAS Field Centre, uh, like website, Instagram, Facebook, all of the above? <laughs> yeah, we've got, um, yeah, AGAS Field Centre's got a website, just there. I think it's just agus, it's either agus.co.uk or agusfieldcentre.co.uk, but there's a conservation page on there, and that talks about all of the conservation work we're doing on the estate here. Um, so my role up here is managing the conservation projects, and the wildcat one definitely takes mm -hmm. up the most time. Um, is it a, a lot like today, for example, I was um, well, every day involves picking up wildcat poo. <laughs> from the enclosures and then um, I was putting some drains in today because we've had so much rain and um, I was trying to um, make it a bit less boggy in one of the enclosures. So um, yeah, it's not, you know, it's, it's cool to work with an apex predator, but a lot of it is just picking up poo and um, yeah, feeding them dead animals. So it's not always glamorous, but it's, it's fun. Um, but the other parts of the project, uh, all the projects we work on, we've got things like um, a beaver demonstration project. Um, we've got um, a project where we're bringing back a uh, pine wood flower, so twin flower, um, which is a, just an absolutely beautiful, tiny little flower. But it's um, in Britain, it's confined to pine woods. And in the Northern Highlands, there's not many of them left. So we're working to bring back a, a healthy population in, in our, onto our estate. Um, and yeah, the kind of the, the staple conservation initiatives like uh, creating wildflower meadows and planting out loads of broadleaf trees to try and diversify some of the the plantations that were put in kind of in the 60s and 70s. Oh, that's amazing. So you've got so much going on. And I'm glad you mentioned beavers there, actually, because I couldn't I couldn't let you go or do this interview without asking you um, about beavers um, as of course they're now being um, reintroduced into the UK um, but of course they were reintroduced first released into Scotland um, earlier than than the rest of the country. Um, yeah so I wanted to sort of ask you about how they're doing up there um, and sort of tell us a little bit about how much they benefit our countryside and why it's such a great thing that they're back Yeah, the beavers just is absolutely awesome. And it's been a long time coming and we're quite, or I feel quite lucky really because um, obviously we're now living in a time when beavers have been reintroduced to Britain and have been accepted back as a native species. And as of last year, uh, they got their European protected status as well. Uh, but there was a long journey to get to that point of actually even releasing them into Natdale in 2009. Um, yeah, so it was a long journey. So we, we're kind of reaping the rewards of the hard work put in by conservationists kind of 30, 40 years ago, <laughs> which is really cool. Um, it was the first mammal, the first uh, mammal to be reintroduced to the UK. And it's a pretty big one. Obviously, you, you see videos and photos of them and it's not always easy to gauge how big these animals are, but they're just quite, they're kind of like a spaniel size, but they're just so tubby and just, just kind of out of the water. They're so uncoordinated and they kind of waddle around. But say so we've got them um, on, on the lock here at Agus and it's, it's, they're in an enclosure. So they've got a, a huge enclosure, but there is a fence around it. And that's because beavers, they can't be, uh, released into unauthorized areas so that's why cows are in an enclosure uh, but there are wild populations that can expand naturally now in scotland so we've got the napdale population which is out on the west in argyleshire and then there's the tay population which is based on the river tay on the east coast and that was actually it, that came about as a result of uh, an illegal release or an accidental release of beavers onto the River Tay. And it's one of the best, one of the biggest tributaries uh, or one of the biggest river catchments um, in Scotland. So 
the Beavers, it, it doesn't seem like an accident that somebody released in there because the Beavers have got such potential to spread uh, throughout Scotland, which is really cool. Um, I, I think, um, and it's, and I think if, if they weren't released or somebody hadn't released them, I'm not sure if that the Napdale, sorry, the, the, um, yeah, the Napdale population would have done as well because they had to take some over from the Tay to Napdale to kind of supplement that population there at one stage, I believe. And that, um, so it, that kind of bolstered that population and made it more of a success. Um, when you look at animals and what they do, there's obviously every animal has an amazing role to play in the ecosystem and whether we understand it or not. Uh, but the beaver impact on the rest of the ecosystem is um, almost bigger, it seems, than any other animal. So they're a real keystone species. They create habitat they're, um, through dabbing and felling trees. Um, they create wetlands, which not just amazing carbon sinks wetlands, but really biodiverse. And you've got loads of um, prey in the, the pools they create for otters and uh, and birds and larger fish. So they're absolutely amazing animals. And an animal that we lived with in Britain up until about 400 years ago is when they were last, um, they were last living here before they were hunted to extinction again. That's a common theme. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but it's we're living on a bit of um, it's a bit of a pun really. But the be the beaver coming back might might have opened up the floodgates for um, bringing back other mammals. Do you think you'll see you'd see that happen in Scotland first? Um, like at the very beginning of the interview, you said about lynxes and, and wolves. Like, could you ever imagine that happening? Because I know there's a, you know massive concern from people. Um, for various different reasons about something like a wolf, but uh, would you want that to happen? Is that something you could see happening in the future? Yeah, uh, from my point of view, I'd love to see uh, all of these animals back to make Britain a wilder place. And the Highlands is uh, an ideal location because of the small uh, human population density. And that's, that's arisen because of so many wrongdoings from humans to other humans. A lot of the um, Highlanders that lived here a couple of hundred years ago were cleared off of their lands. It was really brutal. Um, people were forced to live in ditches while their houses were burnt down just so that um, their, the areas where they were farming could just be replaced by just a big monoculture of sheep. And you didn't need... You didn't need many people to manage that. So um, like hundreds of people were moved off of the land, cleared off the land, if not thousands, sorry. And um, a lot of people, they left because there was no opportunity to live or make money up here. So um, we've, we've found ourselves in the Highlands now in a situation where we've got one of the lowest population densities in all of Europe. And we've just got these huge, big open expanses of... Um, you know, uninhabited lands and some of them are managed um, a lot of them are managed for grouse moors um, which is kind of a Victorian um, pastime of people going out and shooting grouse um, and grouse love heather so uh, by burning uh, a heather moorland you kill off a lot of the competition for heather and heather is the one that grows back faster. So you're getting rid of the trees and you're getting rid of the, the competition. The heather grows back and the grouse, the red grouse love that. Um, so it's almost grouse farming, a lot of it. Um, but we've got these big open, uh, we have got these big open areas. And I mean, grouse moorland management is kind of right in the crosshairs of um, the conservation movement at the moment, because there's so many, um, wrongdoings there in terms of illegal um, persecution of birds of prey and burning of uh, peat, um, which is a pretty vital carbon sink and we need it now more than ever. And so there might be more regulations coming in there, which means that, you know, people who own moors uh, might look to other ways of making money or other land uses. And, you know, hopefully that'll involve giving nature a bit more room and 
leaving some areas to rewild. And if we could have animals back, like the lynx, like the wolf, it would be uh, it would be amazing because they're only going to add to those changes. They're going to increase the biodiversity up here and, and bring balance to the ecosystem, which is, is hard to. I know I'm rambling on a bit because there's so many yeah. there's so many issues to address, I guess, in Britain, but in the Highlands. Um, but yeah, if you brought back lynx, for example, um, they're going to start predating their roe deer and keeping their numbers more in check, which is going to enable woodlands to be a bit more in balance to be a bit healthier and then you'll get more small mammals because there's more food for them the deer aren't eating it all if you've got more small mammals you're going to have more food for the raptors and um, and so yeah it's just going to benefit our ecosystem if we can bring back those animals and it sounds like if anyone's going to be at the forefront of it then you guys up there um would be would be the guys to who have the expertise and the abilities to to get something like that going um yeah and i mean we can follow you personally as well, can't we, on Instagram? Um, if you if you want that link to be in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that'd be awesome. But I, I, I'll yeah. make sure I post a bit more. Um, and um, if anyone's interested, yeah, I'll, I'll post a bit more about um, what I'm doing and what what, um, what the conservation effort in the Highlands is. is and what would, you, what would you say to people who want to visit um, the place visit Agus Field Centre and, and to see what's going on what would you recommend um, what's the best time to come um, yeah if people want to come up and see what would you what would you recommend for them to do um, the probably the best thing is I don't know how many people would be interested but I'd probably contact me directly and if um, if um, anyone just wanted to you know, learn a bit more or um, see a bit then I'll be more than happy to to show someone around um we do run field courses as well so there's courses if people wanted to come and learn about fungi or um just go out and learn about birds or birds of prey um so there's different ways to come up and visit and obviously they're on the website but if anyone just wanted to find out a bit more they can always contact me um and I'd say the best time of year it depends what you're into but there's so many spectacles up here um if you come up in the autumn you're going to get the red deer rut and you get you know all these amazing um roars echoing around the glens up here um but probably my favorite time of year is kind of april april time i'd say april going into may you just got all of the birds <laughs> kicking off singing and nesting and um, we've got the black grouse that are lecking up here. Um, the capicaly lek as well, but they're pretty much impossible to see. And you don't really want to go and try and find that because um, disturbance of their lecking sites is kind of the, the reason they're in decline or one of the reasons potentially. So, um, but yeah, that, you know, there's loads of cool stuff happening up here. And um, I'd say, yeah, April, May is probably my favourite time of year. So no, I'd always recommend I might, that. Uh, might take you up on the, uh, on the offer of contacting you for... <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, no, please we'll do. That'd be awesome. Um, awesome. So I, I will include your details in the show notes. Um, I'll include um, the website for the Agas Field Centre um, and Instagram links, etc. So people can find you and can find all what's going on. Because um, it sounds amazing stuff yeah. um and thank you so much for for taking us through it and telling us so much about all of it like it's so interesting and i've learned a lot um and now i have um just two more questions for you um which are my two final sort of slightly silly but slightly fun ones that i like to ask everyone um and the first one is if you could have any animal adaptation what would it be hmm now, I listened to your podcast, obviously, before, yeah. so I had a bit of time to think. But it's still a very, very tough question, probably the toughest one <laughs> of the show. Um, and obviously, it'd be cool to, like, because I'm into diving, it'd be cool to not have to lug around all that mm -hmm. equipment. So that would be cool. But I also like to climb hills. So just, like, an animal that's really good at climbing hills, huh? probably like a goat. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to just have like two goat legs. That would be a bit, a bit strange. I'd rather have like a central okay. kind of body, some... but with the ability That's to cool. go up I like that. 
yeah, sort of a mythical beast in there. Yeah, yeah. And it'd also be cool to roll down the hills, like Armadillo style. But I don't know if that's, like, you can't really combine the two. So probably <laughs> just going up would be the... the, the you can get up, you can gallop down or, you know, take time down. So. <laughs> yeah. Cool, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and the second is, who would play you in a movie of your life? Hmm. Well, that's good. It's not, it's not an easy one. I guess it depends if you're like a kid or like when mm. you're an old man. But probably, um, do you know, um, yes. in the Lord of the Rings, um, you've got yeah. Mary in Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. So Dominic Monaghan. And he's kind of like, he always like appears to be quite a, just a nice, well-rounded person in the things he plays so I'm always like yeah he seems like a nice guy I'd like to have a beer with him so like yeah he can yeah. play in that movie I think that'd be cool he's always just like eating food he's in the new Star Wars as well so mm-hmm. that's like boost him up a bit up his... yeah. yeah share a yeah. pint with him it comes in pints I'm getting one <laughs> <laughs> exactly go and eat some lemon bread go to the yeah. green dragon smoke the, smoke the pipe what is it the pipe weed <laughs> Oh, that's it. Toby. <laughs> or long bottom leaf. <laughs> oh, what a good answer. Lovely. I like that one. Brilliant. Okay. Um before I before I say goodbye to you and, and let you go on your on your on your merry way. <laughs> um I will just ask if there's if there's anything more you'd like to say or anything more you'd like to add in in like a positive sort of conservation y light, uh, a takeaway message for for today's show. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, I would say I, I don't know where I read this, but uh, I really it might have been I feel like it was a Dave Goulson thing. He's written a few books about bumblebees, and he's the founder of the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, and he's just writes in a way that I just find so engaging and just really factual but really funny. And um, so I'd say check out his books, um, and that just just always gets me inspired. It's mostly about bees, but it's just gets me inspired beautiful. about everything. And but there's a cool saying that I feel like it was his, but it's um, think global, act local. And it's just obviously we've got so much to think about these days in terms of the climate crisis and uh, just you know coral reefs and you know, everything's happening and not just on our shores, but on the other side of the planet as well. Um, so, but something that makes me feel really good is just doing something in my back garden, um, you know, or just, you know, down the road or wherever, just in a local nature reserve, just doing something that's having a pos- positive impact, just really just kind of gets you out of the, the eco um, anxiety and just makes you feel like, you know, that if everyone act locally act locally then um act locally then they would um, the planet would be saved really so i think that's it just think global that's but act a beautiful locally. sentiment i totally agree yeah everybody doing a little bit making an incremental change makes <laughs> a big change when you put it all together what was what yeah. was the guy's name again sorry um the guy's name is dave goulson <laughs> And it might not, he might not have even quoted it, and it might not even, um, he probably quoted someone else if he did. But he's written a few books. Um, the first one that I read was A Sting in the Tail. That was really good. Um, and then A Buzz in the Meadow. And then there was one, there was a cool one called Bee Quest. And he goes around the world to find um, certain bumblebees. And it's just a really cool way of just, see in the world is, and it makes for a really good read and the latest one is Garden Jungle I feel like I worked really <laughs> but I just really enjoyed giving it. him a really good plug at the end <laughs> well yeah, I'm definitely going to yeah, go away yeah. and check him out and, and read some of that as well um, so thanks for the recommendation and thank cool. you for the lovely words oh, it's been awesome um, looking forward to your next podcast coming out um, and yeah thanks for doing this it's um, yeah, it does. It does make you feel oh, good. Good. I'm glad. That's my aim. <laughs> Thank you so much.
your time and thank you so much for agreeing to to do this um i know sometimes public speaking is not people's sort of favorite thing to do um so i'm very very grateful to everyone who says yes um so thank you for for giving me some of your time to to speak to me and and everybody who who wants to have a listen to some positive conservation stories Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for asking me. And um, yeah, hopefully speak to you soon. And uh, Yeah, definitely. That would be absolutely amazing. Oh, oh, it's been so good. Oh, I'm really smiling. Wonderful. Okay, I'm going to sign off now and, and let you go. <laughs> Take okay. care. See you later. Thank you so much for joining me in episode six, all about the Eurasian beaver. And I hope you enjoyed talking to Ben there about all his work in Scotland, the Scottish wildcats, a little bit about beavers themselves, um, and just about, yeah, the wonderful landscape that is so close to us in the UK. Um, as I say, I will put links um, in the show notes to those reports um, from the Wildlife Trusts um, and uh, links to Ben's pages so you can um, follow his work and see his photos as well. Um, as always, take care, everyone. Um, and if you are out and about in your garden um, or if you are getting out to a park for your one form of exercise a day, um, there is an app called iNaturalist, which you can record what you see on there. And if you can get a little snap of wildlife that you see, um, you can upload it to that as well um, big piece of citizen science um, to see sort of what urban wildlife and stuff we've got going on um, so that's iNaturalist you can find that on any any of the usual app stores um, and it's just a bit of fun as well to keep you occupied in these times um, so yeah stay safe everyone um, stay well stay sane stay hydrated as always um, and happy Easter thank you take care goodbye Remember that hope can be found even in the darkest of times if only one remembers to turn on the light. Mm-hmm.